Well, turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. We're going to look at verses 27 through 30 this morning. If you're new with us, we're in this series that we've entitled Anchored, answering this question, how do we find stability in the midst of rough waters? That's what we've been calling trials and, and discouragement and disappointments and tragedies is we've been terming those things rough waters in our series because really that is something that happens to every one of us. I've never met anyone that's immune from experiencing difficulties in their life. And so what we have been doing is walking through this book, this book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul has written to this church in Philippi on how we can experience stability even when we're in the midst of rough and uncertain waters. And so we're wrapping up chapter one here in Philippians. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. Hopefully you're there. You follow along with me. And we're going to start in verse 27 where Paul says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you're taking notes this morning and you have one of those cards that the ushers were handing at the doors when you came in, I hope that you're taking notes this morning because the title of the message is this, What is it worth? Did you notice in verse 27 How Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we're going to explain what he means by that phrase and what that looks like in our life. And as we're talking on the subject of worth, it made me ask myself, like in my life, and, and probably true of your life as well, as we think about one another and we, and we really think, man, what determines worth? Like, what determines worth for you? What determines worth for me? And I began thinking about that for myself. And like I said, I'm sure many of us can identify with these reasons. I thought of some reasons, and here's the first one. Think about it. Don't opinions of others cause you to determine what has worth or what has value? Like, just think of, just think of in the relation of styles of clothes, So I've lived long enough in this life that now even some of the styles that I remember wearing like almost 30 years ago are now starting to come back in. Have you ever seen, maybe if you don't follow this, some of you might, like the stuff that we wore in the 80s are now starting to like be seen. Like like not that, I don't want anyone to think that I'm some fashionista because that's not the case, okay? So don't start judging my manliness by when I say this comment. But I remember sometimes, like I remember in, in, uh, in the 80s, I remember my mom used to wear these dresses and she used to look like a linebacker because it had these massive shoulder pads in these dresses and all of a sudden I'm starting to see like that's like becoming a thing. And so it's interesting that some of the things that we wouldn't have worn 10 years ago, 
we're wearing now. Why? Because someone is telling us that it's the thing to wear. And as I started to think about that, I started to look back at, at different styles that people wore at different ages. And, and here's what I find interesting is there's certain styles that are rep- replicable and there's other certain styles that you never see again, which is kind of funny because when you look at some of those things, you're like, holy cow, like somebody said that that was cool to wear and people were wearing it. Let me give you some examples. Let's just roll back in our time machine to the 1970s. Like this was actually something that someone in their mind thought this, it just looks amazing. Like sweaters with belts. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you fall into the age group that you actually wore that and thought that was cool. But at some point, someone said, we're gonna get this trend going. Aren't you so thankful? I haven't seen that again. Thank the Lord. How about this one? It gets even worse. Like this was another ad in a magazine of what dudes should be wearing. This was also from the 70s. Like, I don't know if like grandma made that thing at the bottom there or, or what. I remember a blanket that I used to have growing up that looked like that. And then my grandma, it was a crocheted, is that what they call it? Anyways, this at one time was seen as something that was in style, that somebody's opinion actually shaped a culture to where guys actually thought they looked good wearing that. And we kind of laugh about it, but think about it. Opinions of others tell us what's of worth. Doesn't culture do that as well? I mean, in some ways, that illustration that we just talked about bleeds into culture. Culture tells us what has worth. What we're supposed to see as having value. Think about this, sentimentality. Doesn't that affect what you, what you place your worth in? Like some of you may, may collect things or, or want to go after certain things because those things that you collect, what they are doing is, is they're bringing back memories of childhood or of a thing that you used to do in the past, whatever it is. And because those things are sentimental to you, you find worth in them, whereas someone else who doesn't have those same memories would look at that and say, that doesn't make any sense to me why they would be spending money and finding worth in those things. But sentimentality contributes to what we find worth in. Think about this. Cost. How much something costs determines our value of it or our worth of it. I've been reading this book that talks about influence, and it's not written by a Christian author, but it was interesting. He was talking about different ways um, that we are uh, given to be influenced to do certain things. And he was mentioning how they did this study that in the, one of these stores in the Caribbean, you know, when you, if you've ever been to the Caribbean, there's all these little tchotchke shops that you can buy all of these different things and this jewelry. And they're like, man, this is, this is like pure silver. And then you buy it and you go home and it like turns black in one week, right? Uh, that's happened to me before. And well, what they found is, is, is when they were selling like those topaz stones and those different types of things that, that what they would do is when they literally said 50% off, they didn't seem to be moving the merchandise because everybody was marking stuff down. But what one shop did is what they did is they did the complete opposite. What they did is they, they put the prices on the jewelry of two times as much as what everyone else was selling their merchandise for. 
And what they found was interesting. The people that charged two times as much as everyone else moved their product out extremely fast. Why? Because there's something ingrained in us that says if it costs more, it must be worth more. And so various things affect where we put our worth. And the reason why I'm giving those illustrations is because that is what Paul is getting at in Philippians 1, verse 27, when he says that word, only. Like, remember everything that he's talked about up to this point and, and how he's been able to endure suffering and all of that. And now he comes to verse 27 and he says, here's the one thing that we need to remember. If we can boil it down to one thing, here it is. And he says, only this, which is a way of us as we read it today. Whenever you're reading God's word and you see only, you're like, all right, I better pay attention here. Because Paul says, here's what I want you to get. Here's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. Here's the thing I want you to get. I want you to understand. I want you to grow in understanding. It's this, that you and I need to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul uses this phrase almost identically as what we find in Philippians 1.27. He mentions it in Ephesians 4.1. He mentions it in Colossians 1.10. He mentions it in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. He mentions it in 2 Thessalonians 1.5. Almost verbatim. That we're to live our lives in such a way that it's worthy of who we are. But that word worthy is an interesting word because it literally means Worth. See, when we read this verse, our mind automatically goes to, wait a minute, i got to do something to earn something. i got to live my life in such a way that, that like I'm worthy of the gospel, so i got to earn my salvation. Wait a minute, there's other passages of Scripture that tell me it's a grace, that I, there's nothing I can do to earn it. And if you're thinking that way, wait a minute, is there a contradiction here? I'm glad you're thinking that way because there's not. Worthy is not the idea that I have to live a certain way to earn something, but it's that I'm living a certain way that communicates how much worth I'm placing on my relationship with Jesus Christ. That I see it as of the highest value above anything other. That I see my worth and value in my relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's not affected by the opinions of others. That I have such a worth and a value of Jesus Christ that that's not affected by what the culture tells me. That I have such a worth and such a value of Jesus Christ that it's more than sentimental. It's more than some tradition that we've had in our family. No, 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 it's mine. I have worth in it. I have value in it of the utmost because I understand how much it cost God. I understand that Jesus Christ gave his perfect life and has lived and died a perfect death and rose again three days later to give to me what I could not earn myself. I understand what it costs God. I understand what it costs Jesus Christ. And so I'm placing my utmost value and worth in my relationship with Jesus Christ over anything else or anyone else. That's the idea of worth. And when we see that phrase, let your manner of life, it's an interesting because there's a lot of words there, right? There's let your manner of life. There's five words there. But in the Greek, it's one word. And it's this word that gives the idea of citizen. That's the idea. 
And what you need to understand is that in the culture in which Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and really all the Greek culture during that time, that this word describes something so much more than what citizen communicates today. See, I can be a citizen of Winston-Salem because I live here. But it's not that I'm thinking about Winston-Salem and that I'm a Winstonian. Is that what you say? Not sure. Went out on a limb there. Like, that's who I am. I've only lived here less than two years. This is who I am. I've not met many people like that. There might be some in here. But you don't have to be like that to live in Winston-Salem. You don't even have to be a citizen of this country and it be required of you to wave the flag and have red, white, and blue and do fireworks on the 4th of July and everything else. There's not that requirement there. You ought to love your country, but, but there's not this requirement that you need to love it this much and not love it this much. There's not that idea. We, we don't live that way. But in this culture, your citizenship was everything. It shaped how you thought. It shaped how you lived. It actually was identified with who you were. And so when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's saying to the culture and to the church that lived in Philippi is, listen, you love your citizenship, that you're a citizen of Rome, that you're a colony of Rome, and it's easy to equate your identity with that. But you're so much more than that. As much as you place value on your earthly citizenship, let us remind ourselves that our worth and our value in our relationship with Jesus Christ trumps everything else. It's of utmost priority because we're growing in our understanding of how much worth is found in it. That's revealed in your priorities. Think about it. Think about your life. What would be at the top of the list if you had to write them out? We know what the right answer is, right? Relationship with Christ ought to be at the top of the list. And if that's true of you, man, I'm so thankful for that. But we need to ask ourselves right now as I'm even talking, is that at the top of the list? Or is it my job? Or is it my goals? Or is it my aspirations? Or is it my wife? Or is it my kids? Or is it my girlfriend, my boyfriend? my activities. Because what Paul is saying here is, listen, if you need to remember one thing in order to find stability in the midst of rough waters, Paul says, only let your manner of life, who you are and what you have been given in Jesus Christ, let that be of utmost worth to you. And here's the idea that I want you to get this morning in understanding what Paul means by that phrase. It's this idea. Worth motivates walk. What I find my utmost worth in motivates my walk with the Lord. 
Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection for your sins, first of all, I am so glad that you're here. And my greatest desire for you, and more importantly, God's greatest desire for you, is for you to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your salvation. Not in the good that you can do, but in the perfection that he's accomplished for you. That's God's greatest desire for you today. But if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, listen to me, what you find utmost worth in will affect your walk with the Lord. It will. And I think oftentimes when we approach God's word and we look at the things that God gives us and how we're to live our life, oftentimes we approach it and say, well, the way to motivate my walk with the Lord is out of guilt. So we open up God's word and we're preaching a message and we're talking about the way that we ought to live like we're going to do this morning and you're like, man, I'm not living that way and I feel so guilty. And that's what happens when we're convicted with sin. There is a guilt. But I'm not meant to stay there as a follower of Jesus Christ. See, what motivates my walk with the Lord is not guilt is not let me make you feel more guilty so that you can, you can be motivated to live more for the Lord. No, 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 that creates God as some taskmaster. But what motivates my walk with him is not guilt, but it's gratitude. That's why I say our worth motivates our walk. That when I begin growing more and more in understanding about how much Christ loves me and what I have in him and the satisfaction that comes from pursuing that relationship with the Lord and growing in that relationship with the Lord and the joy that I experience as I grow more in that and the peace that I experience growing more in that, even in the midst of rough waters, like what I begin to see is God, I have so much gratitude for my relationship with the Lord that God, even as you're stripping things from my life, though it's painful, like we talked about last week, what you're growing in me is a greater understanding that my ultimate worth is not finding the things that you seem to be pruning away, but you're doing that so that I remember that my greatest worth is found in my relationship with Jesus Christ because when I grow an understanding in that, I also grow an appreciation of it and in gratitude of it, and what that does is that motivates me to live more for him it's not motivated out of guilt it's motivated out of gratitude so what I want to do this morning is give you three ways that you can know that Christ's worth is motivating your walk like if that's what the Lord desires of us then how can we kind of say man let me look at my life and let me see if I'm actually walking with the Lord and it's being motivated by his worth. Here's the first one and it's found in the second part of verse 27. We read the first part where Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But look at what it continues to say. It says, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. You know what oftentimes think about when I read that when I was studying this week? I thought about how oftentimes when we were kids, how it's like when the teacher came into the room, all of a sudden we're studying and we're doing our work and as soon as he or she leaves, man, we're going crazy and we're like doing whatever we want. Maybe you're like that with your boss right now. Boss walks into the room, oh, all of a sudden I'm on the phone call and I'm working heartily. And then he leaves and it's kind of like, oh, now I'm on Facebook or whatever. And it's interesting that Paul says, hey, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like your worth 
is in your relationship with Jesus Christ more than what I think of you. You're not living for me, you're living for the Lord. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, whether I'm there or I'm not, what are we doing? He says, you are standing firm in one spirit, which gives us the first way that we can know that Christ's worth is motivating our walk. Number one, my walk with Christ is growing in consistency. I'm seeing more and more that my desires are for the Lord and less for the things that are contrary to His way and His word. See, my walk with the Lord is growing in consistency. And I say that because of that phrase that Paul mentions. He says, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That idea of standing firm. It's mentioned over and over again in the New Testament. Nine times it's mentioned in the New Testament to refer to how we are to live our lives. We're to stand firm. It's an action. Stand firm in what? I need to stand firm in a belief in who I am in Christ and what I've been given to Christ. That I'm a child of God, that my identity is rooted in Him. I'm not defined by anything greater than my identity in Jesus Christ. That I'm a child of God, loved by God, in spite of my sin. I'm loved with an eternal love. I'm loved with a love that never changes. That who I am at my core, that who, what defines me is my relationship with Jesus Christ more than anything else. I'm not defined by my relationships. I'm not defined by my occupation. I'm not defined by my paycheck. I'm not defined by anything else other than who I am in Jesus Christ. That's where I stand firm. And when I grow in understanding in that, then that belief causes me then to say no to the things that want to claim my allegiance. See, standing firm is a belief and who I am and what I've been given in Jesus Christ that my identity is found in Him. My satisfaction is found in Him. And then that results in an action. There's a motivation to say, no, 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 no. I'm beginning to grow in understanding what's counterfeit from what's real. See, that's standing firm. And I think it's interesting that you never find in the New Testament where we're supposed to be, like, like there's never this charge the hill. And there's definitely not anything that talks about retreating. But it's always talking about standing firm. You know why we stand firm? Because the battle's already been won. Jesus Christ already won the battle. When he said it was finished and he rose again three days later, victory was accomplished. I don't need to fight. I need to stand in that. Like that's where my foundation needs to be. Using our series, that's where my anchor needs to drop. We've been talking about that every week. I need to stand firm in that. And when I'm standing firm on the rock, Jesus Christ, my identity with him, I don't fall. I stand. In spite of the wind, in spite of the rain, in spite of the floods, like Matthew 7 talks about, 24 through 27, I stand firm. But listen to me, in case we're getting confused, when Paul says stand firm, he doesn't mean, man, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you walking out of here and saying, yes, I can. I can do this. Listen to me, if you ever hear God's word preached in here and you walk out of those doors thinking that you can do this on your own, we failed in the pulpit. Because Paul just doesn't say standing firm, but what does he say? Look at it. What does he say in verse 27? He says standing firm in one 
Spirit. See, there's the power. There's the strength. There's the means for me to walk with Christ, to grow in my consistency in my walk with Christ. There it is. It's because of the power of the Spirit. When I put my faith and trust in Christ, He comes into my life. He indwells me. That's why Jesus refers in John 14. He says, I'm going to send you a what? A helper. He indwells me. He fills me. He gives me the power to do what? To grow in my consistency in the Lord. To stand firm when other things are wanting to vie for my allegiance. When other things are wanting to claim my utmost worth and where I'm wanting to place my utmost value. I'm able to say no to those things. Why? Because I'm standing firm because of the strength of the Spirit. I mean, that's Galatians 5. Where Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he talks about how the desires of the Spirit are at war with the desires of our sinful nature. But then we come to verse 22 and Paul shares a passage of Scripture that's very familiar to many of us. The fruit of the Spirit. And what he's, the reason why he's sharing those, he's like, here's how we can know that we're walking in the Spirit is that our lives will grow in showing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Do you remember when you were a little, four, five years old, and how you used to love to hold your dad's hand. Like I said in the first service, something happens like seven, eight, nine, where that's no longer cool. But man, when it is, like you as a dad or as a mom, man, you seize that, right? You love it. And I remember, I remember when I was little and loving to hold my dad's hand, but here's what's, here's what's interesting about my dad. My dad walks extremely fast. Anybody else in here like that? You just walk super fast. Like, I, I get accused of that now, and it's probably because I had to keep up with my dad. And you remember when you were walking with your dad or, or even with your mom, and they're walking, and it would be like, man, they're walking so much faster than I am, and it was so hard for you to keep in step with your mom or dad. And how many of you remember, whether it's in your, you're at a theme park or something, and finally, what does your mom or dad do? They just get tired of you falling behind, and what do they do? They pick you up, and they just start walking. I always think of that when I see that passage in Galatians 5. Let me read it again where it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, that you know, when I start seeing my consistency and my walk with Christ growing, I can't take credit for it. But what I am growing and understanding is, man, it's so awesome when the Holy Spirit picks me up in His arms and He begins to do the things that I can't do in my nature. And what that does is that actually grows my worth of Christ. It grows my gratitude that, Lord, not only did You save me by Your grace, but You're giving me the power of the Holy Spirit, which also testifies Your grace so that I can walk with consistency in my relationship with You. And I wonder this morning, as you look at your life and you ask the question, am I living a life in a manner that shows worth to my relationship with Jesus Christ? 
Is my walk with Christ one that's growing in its consistency? And maybe you're like, man, that's not happening. Well, can I encourage you this morning that the reason why that's not happening is not because that God hasn't given something that you need and he's withholding something from you. Because 2 Peter 1 says he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But listen to me, my intimacy with God, my time with God every day, my intimacy with God affects my consistency in my walk with God. And I know if you're a part of this church, it sounds like I just say this all the time, but I say it because it's true. I cannot experience consistency in my walk with God if I am not spending time in His Word every day. It cannot happen. And we need to remind ourselves of that, that if I want to experience consistency in my walk with God, then I have to ask myself, am I actually spending time in his word? Am I developing that intimacy with God? Because intimacy leads to consistency. Many of you are in life groups, and I hope that all of you will join a life group if you've not joined one already. We call that the other half of church. You're missing half of church when you're not in a life group. And what all of us need to do in our life groups is if we're experiencing that we're not being consistent in our time with the Lord, then we need to say, hey, we're going to hold each other accountable to that, not in a policing way, but in a partnering way. Let's all read a reading plan together. Let's all text back and forth what we're getting from God's word. Man, this stood out to me today. This is how I applied it today. These are the questions that I may have with what I've read this week and be diligent knowing that I can't experience consistency and victory in my walk with the Lord apart from being in his word. It's not just time in his word, it's time in prayer. I've had to confess this week being completely transparent that I have not spent time in prayer. I know the way that I should. You know why? Because my frustration level has been at a different level. And I've been getting caught up thinking, how can I solve these things? How can, how can I uh, come after these situations? And what I've found is, is the reason why my frustration level is up is God saying, wait a minute, like, you can't do this. You need the Spirit. And so we say this at Harvest, how do we begin a prayer time? Man, we get alone with God, we pray out loud with God, we have a list, and we're on our knees. Because I don't know about you, but when I don't pray out loud, my mind goes to a million different places. If you are, more, if you are better than that, God bless you, but I'm not. And then we're in God's word, we're praying and taking the things that are heavy in our heart and heavy on the hearts of others. We're not only self-focused in our prayer, but we're also praying for others. But then here's the third thing. We're not just in God's word and praying, but we're actually taking God's word and we're applying it to our lives. Listen to me, that's how we walk in the spirit. That's how we begin to grow in our consistency in our walk with the Lord. Here's the second thing. He just doesn't say standing firm in one spirit. But then he also says, look at verse 27, the the third part of verse 27, he says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, here's the second way I can know that Christ's worth is motivating my walk. My walk with Christ is not only growing in consistency, but it's growing in compassion. Here's what I think is interesting. Styles change, right? We talked about that. A lot of things change. Technology changes. But one thing that doesn't change is the human heart. And it's interesting that Paul encourages them, exhorts them 
to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because as we'll see when we get there in Philippians 4 too, that there was some division going on. That evidently there were two women who were not getting along with one another. And because they weren't getting along with one another, sides were being taken. Don't we do the same thing? We get upset with somebody, we question their motives, we misinterpret their motives, we get upset, we get angry, we start to harbor bitterness towards that person, and then what results? Then all of a sudden now we're in life groups saying, hey, I need you to pray about this certain situation, about this person, and then what do we begin to have? Sides begin to be taken. I mean, what we need to understand is, is the devil's modus operandi for the church is to divide and conquer. Because if I can divide the church on, on things that are less important than its mission, and I can divide the church, then, I, then, then all of a sudden they get sidetracked on issues that are of less value than the most important thing, which is declaring the gospel. Remember our purpose we talked about a couple weeks ago? Declaring the gospel and demonstrating its power through our lives. And then I can get individuals to then isolate themselves and say, well, I'm not going to church anymore because I'll see that person all the time and I'm not about to take the time to get it right. No, 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 I'll just rather not go to church. Now I'm in isolation where the enemy does his greatest work. Do you see what happens? But Paul uses this athletic term, striving side by side. In other words, giving the idea, it's an athletic term of teamwork. Like we're completely unified in this. We have one mission and we're all committed to it. And we're literally side by side. It makes me think of a three-legged race. Remember those in elementary school? Kind of hard in a three-legged race for one person to go one way and another person to go the other way. You know what's going to happen? You're not going to win the race. Do you remember you always had those couple that would always team up and they were amazing at it and they were like in step, like it was almost like one person running and how fast they could go? That's the idea of striving side by side. Makes me think of, how many of you have ever played pickup basketball? Raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Okay, not as many as the 9 a.m. So if you didn't, just stick with me here for a second. You notice how when you play pickup basketball, there's always different people that kind of fall into different categories on the team? Like there's always, there's always the guy or girl that's always saying this phrase, my bad, my bad. Shoots the ball, doesn't even hit the rim, my bad. Passes the ball out of bounds, doesn't even come close to you, my bad. It's always my bad. You're like, dude, just fix it. But they're always like, my bad. Or you have another guy, man, I mean, like, he's got the shoes, he's got the shorts, he's got the shirt, he's got the armbands or the headband, and you're like picking teams, you're like, man, he's got to be good because he spent $400 on his outfit to play pickup basketball. He's got to be good, and then you put him on your team and you find out, man, he just looks good, but he plays terrible, Like Usually you have that person on the team. You have another person on the team who plays basketball like football, you know what I mean? Like, he's just out there to bring as much pain to any person who goes up for a layup, Right? And then you always have this person and everyone. You have the chucker. Never passes, always shooting the shot. So I like playing pickup basketball, even though I haven't played it in quite a long time, actually. Because now every time I play it, I'm worried that at the end of that pickup basketball, I'm going to have a torn MCL or ACL or a torn Achilles tendon. But can I just be a little self-deprecating this morning? Like, who doesn't like a speaker to be that, right? 
I've been accused of being a chucker. Like I remember we were playing a family game of basketball and Lucas, my son, who's 11 years old, was on my team and this is very self-deprecating, but we're in a church and you're just show compassion. We're on compassion point right now, okay? So, and he was like, dad, what's our game plan? And I, I literally said this to my 11-year-old son. Here's our game plan, son. Pass me the ball and I'll shoot. And I mentioned all those, that silly illustration about the different people that we have on a pickup basketball game, and some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but here's the point. No team that accomplishes anything has every person on the team serving their own agenda. And what we need to understand is when Paul says, here's, here's how you live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that shows worth your worth and how you value Jesus Christ and what he's done for you is that you are growing in your compassion for one another because nothing demonstrates spiritual maturity more than how you love others. Nothing more. If you're someone who gets caught up in everybody's drama and always taking sides, you know what that clearly communicates? Right now you're an immature Christian. Because what did we say spiritual maturity was? It's taking what we know and applying it to what we experience. And if I this morning know the love of God and I know that I'm a child of God and I place my faith and trust in his love for me through his life, death, and resurrection, if that is me and I know that and I know that I'm supposed to love others and I'm not applying it to what I'm experiencing, then that reveals the level of maturity that I have. I'm an immature Christian. And man, if we could get this in the church. That I'm not loving with a selfless love. I love others with a selfless love. That I'm not just loving people that agree with everything that I say. I'm not just loving people that look exactly like I look. I'm not just loving people that have the same interests as I have. No, no, no. My love is extending to people that are actually different than me. Man, when you're doing that, you ought to be encouraged because what it means is the Lord is growing you in your walk with Him and you are growing in your compassion. Here's the third thing. Look at what it says in verses 28 through 30. Paul continues to say this, not only am I striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, but look at this, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Here's the third way I can know that I am, Christ's worth is motivating my walk. Not just that my walk with Christ is growing in consistency and compassion, but here's the third thing, in confidence. In confidence. Here's what's so awesome. I love this. When I was studying this week, I thought, man, God, that encouraged me so much. Is that phrase, not frightened, is actually in the tense that communicates this. It's something that happened in the past that I'm applying to the present. So what Paul is saying is, is the reason why I don't need to be frightened by any opposition, any opponent against me, is because I am taking what I value most, and that is my relationship with Jesus Christ, my identity that's found in him, the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to me, that equips me to be able to stand firm, that equips me to be able to show compassion, that equips me to be able to have confidence. And I'm taking that thing that happened in the past, and I am applying it to the things that I am experiencing in the present. 
And when I start to see in my life that all of a sudden now my, my walk with the Lord is growing in confidence, man, that's an amazing thing that encourages us and encourages those around us. See, some of us this morning fear of whatever it is, whatever rough waters it is, it's crashing down upon you. And it's heavy. And you're like, I can't carry it anymore. And if that's you this morning, I want you to break out a pen or when you get home, and I want you to come to this verse in verse 28, and I want you to write on top of anything, I want you to write out whatever it is. And you say to yourself, wait a minute, I'm a child of God, I've been saved by Him, my identity's found in Him, I have the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I want to grow in my confidence, and your word says that I ought to not be frightened, not in some things, but in anything. So write whatever it is above that verse and claim it this morning, preach it this morning. If this week you've got to yell it out in the quietness of your car, your room, your shower, whatever it is, and say, no, 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 I know that you've not given me the spirit of fear, God, 2 Timothy 1, 7, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I don't need to be frightened in anything by my opponents. Some of you right now are wondering, man, I don't know how this is going to work out at work. I don't know how this is going to work out in my family. I don't know what that test result is going to be when I go in this week. And what the Lord is saying Wait a minute, when you're anchored in me and your worth is found upmost in me, even when there's pain, even when there's disappointment, wait a minute, there's confidence. There's that quiet confidence that keeps you going. There's that quiet confidence that produces peace as we'll look at in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 when we get to it. I love Psalm 27, man. Some of us ought to just have some passages of Scripture that we can just call to mind when fear is wanting to rule the day in our lives. And Psalm 27 is a passage for me where David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That's who he is. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. What do we say? Standing firm in what? One spirit. That's where the strength is found. The power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh. Some of you may feel like that right now. My heart will not fear. Though a host encamp against me, Like you may feel like you're completely surrounded, though a host encamp against me. My heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, in this I will be confident. In what? In who I am and what I've been given. He's my light, He's my salvation, He's my strength. And when I'm walking a life, that's allowing Christ's worth to motivate my walk, the result is consistency. I'm growing more and more in my consistency with the Lord. I'm growing more and more in my compassion that I'm showing to others. And man, I'm growing more and more in my confidence to face whatever comes my way.